Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. So uh, Sears is, as you know, going under. And lots of people have been to Sears stores over the last week or so looking for tremendous bargains. Of course, there aren't any. We're very few because it's really just a 20% off sale at this point. You can walk down to the other end of the mall and it's cheaper the other store, the other end of the mall. Anyway, I was talking to a couple of people at Sears who were working there and, and I said to them, why are you still here? And of course, there was a stupid question because the answer is because we get a paycheck. And and then I, I said, how do you feel about no severance, which was another stupid question, because clearly they're very unhappy about that. But while I was asking one of the people at, who works at Sears, another person who was shopping there, got into the conversation and said, it's really unfair. It really isn't fair that these people are not going to get any severance whatsoever, but uh, executives who are on the Sears payroll are going to be getting bonuses over this difficult time. Joining us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network is a man who knows why this is going on. He's one of this country's foremost employment lawyers, Lior Samfiru, founding partner of Samfiru Tamarkin LLP in Toronto. Lior, thank you for the time. Thank you for having me, Roy. So uh, you wrote about this uh, earlier in the week, but let's please explain to everyone what's going on. Why are the employees getting nothing and senior management involved in liquidating the assets of the company or getting bonuses? Well, first of all, the first thing I'd like to point out that in a situation like this, when we have Sears employees being left out in the cold without any compensation, the natural reaction that someone would have is to blame Sears, to demonize Sears, to say, how dare can you treat your employees that, this way? Well, I fully understand that, that that rage is misdirected at Sears. The rage actually should be pointed towards our bankruptcy laws, which really requires Sears to do what it's doing, doesn't really give Sears any option. And what happens in a bankruptcy situation, the company's sole obligation really is to look after its secured creditors, to do whatever it needs to do to make sure that its secured creditors get paid something when the bankruptcy is all said and done. Now, with respect to these uh, senior employees getting bonuses, what the courts has agreed with, with Sears is that for Sears to do its job, which is to help its secured creditors, it needs these employees, these senior employees in place to oversee and manage the bankruptcy process because they, it feels that without them, it may not be successful in maximizing the amount for its creditors. So therefore, it, it's doing that by providing, providing bonuses and incentives for these managers to stay on uh, instead of just leaving and finding another job. So the problem with our bankruptcy laws, Roy, are such that employees are considered unsecured creditors with respect to their severance entitlements, with respect to their pension entitlements, and the net effect of that is that employees are going to get nothing when this is all said and done. And with Sears, Roy, we're talking about many employees that have worked there for 20, 30, even 40 years, which, and they would have had entitlements that could have been in the six figures, uh, but they're going to see nothing while, as I said, some other employees, some a very small handful of them, may see substantial bonuses in this very unfair scheme. And, Leo, this includes uh, the employees' pension plans as well? Yes. Uh, so uh, Sears's plan, like many others, uh, was underfunded, which means at the time that it went under, it did not have enough money to meet all the obligations uh, for its pensioners. Well, the problem is that with respect to that underfunded amount, employees are, again, considered unsecured creditors, which means they're not going to see that money. So they will all get uh, significantly reduced pensions, on lo a lot less than what they were promised, a lot less than what they expected, and worked for for all these years. So it, it's, a, it's a very bad situation all around. Uh, what's, is there an argument to be made that if the managers are putting out you know, extra effort, to make sure that the uh, the secured creditors are actually going to get as much of the of their investment back as they possibly can, is there an argument to be made that the uh, the employees on the floor are just as active, just as creative, just as necessary to uh, to to achieve this goal? Well, the, the, uh, well, I agree with you completely. Let's face it; they can't do anything without the employees on the floor on the ground. But from a practical standpoint, Sears can say that if we have an employee on the floor that quits on us. We can bring a temporary employee. We can hire someone through an agency to come and do that job. 
whereas the, the senior executive uh, that's overseeing the situation, if they leave, how do we replace them? They're not as replaceable, so we need to incentivize them to stay. So it, it really is a matter of perspective, but I think I do want to point out that these types of bonuses for senior managers is not wholly unusual in a bankruptcy situation when the company deems certain key employees to be vital to its uh, to its creditors, Leo, you wrote in uh, in, in the uh, in the column that you uh, that you wrote. You wrote that uh, in two thousand and nine, the federal NDP proposed the Nortel Act to better protect workers during corporate bankruptcies. The act sought to have workers considered as preferred creditors in order to secure the unfunded portion of their pensions. The proposed law was never passed. Surprise, surprise. Um, what what needs to be done? What has to be done? What can be done? Well, Roy, uh, there's a number of ways to go about this. First way, as with the, that Nortel uh, legislation, the proposed legislation, is we can make employees preferred creditors with respect to their, either their severance or their pension or even both. So they're right at the front of the line. Now, that's probably not going to be the most popular option because the, the, the banks are going to scream bloody murder. They're not going to want to do that, and they may uh, refuse to lend money to companies. So we can take a step back from that and say, fine. We're not going to make employees the very first. We're going to line them up with other secured creditors, so they're not before them, but they're also not after them. That would guarantee that the employees may not get everything, but they'll get some money that's owed to them. But we can take steps back from that even and say, fine, we don't have to secure the full amount that's owing to the employees. How about half? How about 30%? Something has got to be better than nothing. Right now, the employees get no protection, and Roy, surely we could do a lot better than that. Yeah, the the, the lady I was speaking to at the Sears store I was in uh, had been working there for many years, and uh, she didn't really complain. But you could see that it was obviously a negative, really a negative impact on her that she had been there all this time and, and was getting absolutely nothing for it. And I was looking at the uh, the consumer who got into the conversation, and it occurred to me, you really if you're liquidating. Uh, you need some consumer goodwill as well, particularly if your prices aren't particularly great. And, and there's a lot of people there that are, that are, are very upset with this situation. And yeah. I've personally been contacted by, by dozens of, of current and former Sears employees asking for help. And, and you know, unfortunately here, because the bankruptcy laws are such as they are, there, there's no recourse. There's nothing that I can say, fine, I will take this form of legal action to help you. And Sears is such a large employer. They've been part of our of our community here in Canada for, for how many decades now? So everyone knows someone that works at Sears, used to, a friend, a neighbor. So it does impact us, and, and this particular bankruptcy has hit close to home, uh, and which is why I hope that given the publicity that this entire situation is getting, it's going to give some, uh, some members of, of, of Parliament the necessary kick in the rear end to actually do something and help protect future employees that in the, in the future may find themselves uh, in this situation. Would it be a particularly difficult bill to pass or an action to take? Because you, you mentioned the banks would uh, probably kick up bloody murder um, if, if this sort of, you know, the, the employee is a preferred creditor as well. Uh, would it be a technically difficult thing to pass? Well, I think it's finding the right balancing point where the banks are going to be okay with. Let me let me give you an example. If if banks knew that they'll get back 99% of, of loans, they'll have no problem with loaning money. If they thought they're only going to get 10% back, they will never loan money. Right. So it's finding that, that point between 10% and 99% where banks can still be satisfied that they're going to not take a massive risk while still protecting employees as well. So I think it's a completely doable exercise. It, it's finding that, that point where we're not sacrificing employee rights completely. It may not be a perfect solution that everyone is happy, but again, something is always going to be better than nothing. Yeah, I like the fact that you almost have a sensible approach to issues, uh, Lior. The, the last thing that you wrote was, today it's Sears Canada, tomorrow it could be Toys R Us, Best Buy, and Indigo are facing strong competition as well. Unless our laws change, and soon we'll see this story play out again and again on the front pages of newspapers, the lead story in radio newscasts, and on the lips of millions of Canadians. So it's a it's a significant issue. It's an important issue. Well, it, it absolutely is. This is not the last time that we're going to be talking about these issues uh, unless something is done. And uh, it's, it's not going to get better. And 
the, the retailers that you mentioned are, are large retailers, but how many other smaller companies that are never going to make it into the media but have hardworking employees are going to find themselves in that situation? Yeah. Something really does have to be done here. And, and I, 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 I'm glad that some of uh, some MPs have responded positively to my efforts. And there is this, this movement that hopefully uh, will carry some steam into uh, uh, getting our government to do something about it. Uh, it. I think Canadians want that. I think it's a sensible thing to do, and I don't think it's going to be that difficult, frankly. Lior, thank you so much for joining us, and it's a necessary issue, and it's a, it's a great idea that you have. They have to get at it. Thank you. Thank you, Lior. My pleasure. Lior Samfiro is a founding partner of Samfiro to and LLP in Toronto. He's an employment lawyer. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I, uh, I, I heard a story uh, not so long ago about a... Uh, a young lad in Edmonton who was being bullied, and um, a, a group of motorcyclists, big guys with uh, patched vests, I know the image that you've got now, were going to school with this young fellow and letting it be known clearly they were there to support him. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. Okay. Sorry. All right. It's all right. Um, I always like to make sure my guests are fine. Uh, <laughs> joining me to talk about this motorcycle club, and uh, they're remarkable, is the president of the Toronto chapter, and uh, it's Raven Justice, and the motorcycle club is Guardians of the Children. Hi, Raven. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Not bad. Thank you very much. So what's, your, what's, um, what's the mission statement of your, uh, of your club? So the mission of the Guardians of the Children is uh, basically to recognize and react to child abuse. Uh, we like to educate the public to do the same. We serve as advocates to provide strength and stability to families in crisis and answer the prayer of any abused child or teen, hope to give them courage, support, and protection. Um, our tagline is, uh, don't let your silence drown out their cries. Most of the time, you know, these kids are just... Um, they don't know how to speak up, you know, and if they do speak up, a lot of times they're not being heard. So we're hoping to help be their voice and try and change that one child at a time. So what do you do? Give us a for example. I, I talked about the young lad I'd read about or heard about in Edmonton. That's the kind of thing that you do. You find young, but you do other things as well, right, for, for we do, kids Yeah, in we do a lot of things, and, and every uh, family and every child we support is different, you know, based on their needs. Mm-hmm. But we do uh, accompany them to school. If uh, we have a child that's being bullied in school, we will accompany them in the school. We'll make arrangements with the principal and the school board to go inside the school, and uh, we'll do like an anti-bullying campaign for the students. Because a lot of times students, they just they don't want to be mean. They don't want to bully other kids. They just don't understand, you know, when they're trying to uh, say something. Mm-hmm. And they just don't know how to get these words out. So... Uh, we try to get to not only the kid that's being bullied, but also the kid that's actually doing the bullying as well. So people, uh, would, would they normally find you by getting on uh, on, on your national website? Yeah, so um, we are an international organization, um, and there's the Guardians of the Children Canada website, and then Guardians of the Children Toronto, which is the chapter that I'm with, mm-hmm. and uh, our website is gocToronto.ca. And the uh, the national one is Guardians of the Children Canada dot com. Absolutely. Um, how do people find you? Uh, apart apart from doing that, how do you then do you find the kids are sometimes reluctant to, you know, to the kids who are being bullied sometimes don't want anybody involved or engaged because they only they fear it's only going to get worse. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But uh, I think the motorcycle community um, will give them a different sense of uh, security a different sense of courage. They feel, um, you know, we're not big. We come across as being big, bad bikers, but that's not exactly who we are, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but in kids' eyes and in the bullies' eyes, if they see 20, 25, 30 bikes showing up at the school, oh, yeah. they're like, oh, my God, I don't, I, I don't think I'm going to pick on this child anymore because uh, this child has got, you know, 30 people behind them. And the kid itself, it just gives them a sense of belonging, you know. And then those kids come in, they're, um, they, they like to hang out with us. So speaking up to us and talking to us, it's, it's like a cool thing for them to do, you know? I think it's wonderful. So, um, how, how do people, they do approach us a lot quicker. How, how do people become members of uh, 
guardians of the children? How do m- well, motorcycles? Well, one is, uh, you know, you have, to, you have to want to advocate for these kids. Right. Um, you can just contact us. You can contact the Toronto chapter, contact Guardians of the Children Canada. We have 15 chapters across. There's three different levels of membership. So we start everybody out in a uh, support role. Then they prospect for a year, and then they come, become full patch members. All our members are screened. So there, uh, there is a vulnerable sector check on all our members, and there's also a uh, training program that all members must do, and that's from our supporters right on up through to our full patch members. Well, I think it's just tremendous that you're doing this, and it's volunteers, and it's adults with motorcycles, big guys with motorcycles going out and helping the kids who really desperately need the help, and that's just the visual provides them with the support they understand and no doubt really appreciate. Guardians of the Children the national website is guardiansofthechildrencanada.com, and if you're in Toronto, it's www.gotoronto.ca. Raven Justice. Raven, thank you for the time. All the very best to you. Thank you very much. We'll talk soon. Yeah, you bet we will. Okay, thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Raven Justice, Guardians of the Children. If you've got a child who's being bullied or a child in distress, need some help? Get in touch with guardiansofthechildrencanada.com. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. This is amazing. An amazing opportunity. And tonight, you are here making history. Positive history. History that is going to show that this particular moment in time was a pivot to a new, greater government and greater accountability and transparency in Alberta. There's a whole bunch of people across Canada saying, hey, Brian Jean won. I just heard his acceptance speech. Brian, how are you? Good, Roy. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great. Brian Jean, a leadership contender for the United Conservative Party of Alberta. We, we had to play that. It sounded, uh, it sounded so positive. Um, here we are, just a couple of hours away from the announcement of uh, whether it's going to be you or... Jason Kenney or Doug Schweitzer, who leads the United Conservative Party, into a battle in Alberta, and you'll certainly have an impact, the party will have an impact nationally. After all of the, uh, the campaigning, what is it that Albertans want the most? What is it they want most? The government uh, that serves them in Alberta to actually serve them. Okay. Fight for them, Roy. Make their lives better. Give them the freedoms they want, the opportunity to pursue their dreams. They don't want government interference, but they want their money, their tax money spent wisely, good return on investment, public services, good health care, good education, choice in education for parents. Yep. Those, those freedoms, those things that we have and take for granted here in Alberta are amazing, amazing. So why, Brian Jean, why, why would you be the, why are you the best choice of the three? Well, Roy, there's a, a lot of reasons. I think that I am a good contender and a good contestant in this race. All three of the candidates are excellent, but the one thing that sets me apart is the fact that right across Alberta, it doesn't matter where you go, what region, what city, I would win seats there. And I'm the most popular politician in Alberta by any poll that's been done over the last 12 months, 14 months, and um, I can win in every single region. I can unite Albertans behind a common purpose, and I can ensure the defeat of the NDP and Rachel Notley in the next election. Is there still time for people in the province, members of your party, to vote? There is. They still have about four hours left, and my message to all of them would be, please do go out and vote. We can win this, and it has been a long campaign. It's sometimes been bruising, certainly trying, but it has been exciting, and we are less than four hours away from the very end of it. But, Roy, I do need my supporters to know that we can win this, but I need every single one of them that hasn't voted to go out and vote right now. Even yesterday evening, the party reissued pins for everyone who had not yet voted, just to make sure we got as many people to vote as possible. So please, if you're listening right now, check your text messages and your emails and answer your phone if somebody calls. Just these last hours to see if your pin is there. 
Well, if it, anyone's still waiting for a pin, also, Roy, they can call at one eight four four two zero seven fifteen forty three. I push all these messages, Roy, because I think it's so important that Albertans, Canadians, get involved in democracy, have their say with their government, and have higher expectations in their government officials. More accountability, more transparency. Are you comfortable with the way the uh, the campaign is winding up? Well, there have been some question about whether the uh, whether it's been done properly, whether it's it's been being done. I don't use the word fairly necessarily, but whether it's done properly. Well, you know, Roy. At the end of this, we can all look back and and see what we should have done better or or differently. It's always about improving and improving the party and improving the voting process and making sure that we, you know, have that accountability and transparency that I talk about so much because I think it will drive so many other things. But you know, ultimately, uh, we've had some concerns and we identified those concerns just like all you know independent contestants do if they have them and the party has indicated that they have taken steps to resolve them so uh, we take them at their word and we're very uh, excited about this evening because it never happens i truly believe albertans are far better off with the united conservative party conservatives are far stronger together in their fight against the ideological policies of the ndp and I do believe that I'm the leader who gives our party the best shot to building support in every corner of the province. All the polls indicate that. So we can do what we have to do, and that is defeat the NDP in the next election and actually form a common-sense conservative gov- government. Nothing else matters, really, Roy, because if we don't beat the NDP in the next election, and if they get another four years, I am, I am not looking at a positive Alberta future. We are in serious problems right now 90 billion dollars in debt expected in just two years we are rivaling ontario for the largest sub-sovereign debt in the world and uh per capita that really hurts all of us yeah whoever would have thought whoever would have thought that for alberta absolutely but even i've talked about the 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 uh, the draw the federal government makes on uh, on alberta and then the redistribution of monies from the province in uh, in transfer payments so how would you envision the relationship of a Brian Jean-led UCP of Alberta with a federal government that has the kind of agenda that the current federal government has? Well, remember when I said at the rate, right at the beginning to uh, that what Albertans wanted was somebody that stood up for them, somebody that fought for them, somebody that kept their ideas forefront, yep. Albertans first policy? Well, that's why... You know, I spent 25 years as a lawyer, 10 years as a litigator in the courts in Alberta, and my first act will be to communicate, negotiate, and litigate. I will be litigating immediately upon receiving the results of a referendum from the people of Alberta, which I've promised within one year, and we will litigate in relation to our natural resources and the the carbon tax implementation by the federal government or the attempt thereof, and also, you know, holding up our pipelines, taking equalization and redistributing our wealth here from our income taxes, from our CPP premiums from our EI premiums. I'm looking at jurisdictional opportunities for us to take back, for instance, our immigration file from the federal government, which I've been suggesting to do for some period of time, so we control our temporary foreign worker file, which has turned out to be an absolute mess in Alberta. Um, and it's hurt a lot of companies, but ultimately it's hurt a lot of Albertans, both uh, both sides of it. We need to work on these types of things with an Alberta first attitude, and that's what I'm going to bring. I don't want to impress anybody else outside of Alberta. This is my home. It's been my home for over 50 years. I'm from Fort McMurray, and I've experienced the whipping boy complex that uh, people put on the oil sands in Fort McMurray as a federal politician for 10 years and as a businessman and a lawyer. I am going to make sure that the people of Alberta take back this province, and the future of Alberta will be bright. Now, I know you're standing up for Alberta, and your interest is becoming the premier of Alberta and uh, and managing the, the affairs of the province. There's also the federal components, and I'm thinking specifically of the carbon tax. Yesterday, Premier Brian Pallister of Manitoba attempted to sidestep uh, Ottawa's trans, or at least Ottawa's um, uh, carbon tax initiative. What would you do as far as a carbon tax is concerned? Well, I'd work with. Uh, I had an opportunity to work with Brian Pallister, uh, the premier beforehand, uh, as a federal MP, and I'd work with the leader of the PC party, who I worked with for 10 years, too. And I'd work with all the provincial leaders uh, to try to sidestep the federal government. But ultimately, we are immediately going to um, challenge the federal government on all of these files. We have no other choice because we have seen, you know, the decline of our fiscal state with no true appreciation and even a blocking of our natural resources and our constitutional rights. And I think we have to go to the Supreme Court of Canada and have them 
ultimately be the d- decider. Uh, carbon tax, we've already said that we would we would challenge the we would immediately um, revoke it within 30 days of get, getting the privilege of being premier. But then we would, if the federal government followed through, and Justin Trudeau was the pre- prime minister of the country, which I'm hoping he's not going to be, and I'm going to try to help that out. Um, at 2019, we will um, challenge them in the court. And then ultimately, if not successful there, we will mitigate the losses to our industries, the non-competitive nature uh, that this carbon tax will bring in. In particular, we believe that it's going to be very difficult for our industries to compete against the United States, and that's why we have to mitigate this through tax uh, tax mitigation. The federal government, ultimately, I do not believe, will have the jurisdiction to take the the $2,500 per month per, per family, the $5 billion per year out of our economy. They'll have to leave it in. And if they leave it in, we'll mitigate the losses to people through income tax uh, deductions or property tax deductions. But ultimately, it's about competitiveness, Roy. Our country is competing against one of the most aggressive and powerful nations in the world right next door. And we have to be sharp and we have to be competitive and we have to make sure that we're training the best workforce in the world for the future because ultimately that's the only way we're going to keep our high quality of life. Every single day we should be fighting to do that. Yeah, well, in a few hours we'll know who the leader of the United Conservative Party of Alberta is. What's that 844 number again? 844-207-1543. Every single vote counts, Roy. This is going to be so close. I think most people are going to be surprised at how close it will be. Every single vote counts. I'd really appreciate Albertans' support on this. And uh, if you do uh, emerge the winner, then you'll be on the air with us tomorrow. Well, I'll see you tomorrow, Roy. All right. (laughs) I was waiting for that. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for the time. Good luck. My pleasure, sir. All the best. Bye-bye. Brian Jean, running for the leadership of the UCP of Alberta. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. The uh, the Liberal Party's fortunes, as far as Canadians are concerned, have taken a bit of a hit, down seven points since September, probably a lot to do with the difficulties with uh, Mr. Morneau and his tax initiatives. But, says uh, Daryl Bricker, the president of Ipsos Polling, and a poll done for Global News, that uh, seven-point drop isn't necessarily bad news in a, in a serious way, for the Liberals. Uh, hi, Daryl. Explain that to us, please. Hey, Roy Green. Good to talk to you. Yeah, good to talk to you. Um, it's because the Liberals still have a 52% approval level. Uh, if governments, incumbent governments, have approval levels like that, they usually get reelected. Uh, you're you're going to have to probably see them drop somewhere below 45 before anybody really has a serious chance to get at them. And uh, so as long as their numbers hold up to where they are right now, they're still looking pretty good. So do you see that being a, a number they'll be able to sustain or climb above? Well, and, and... you know, they, they've had the last two years basically by themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, anything that's happened to them has been an unforced error, it's something that they've done on their own rather than one of the opposition parties bringing it to them. So now that they've got some opposition parties that are serious competition, uh, I expect that what you're going to see is that you're going to uh, the, the numbers are going to get worse for them. It's just what happens to governments over time. So, what are the numbers like then? If you look at the Conservatives, you look at the NDP with their new leader. What are their numbers like compared to the Liberals? Well, we've got the uh, Liberals at about 38. We've got the Conservatives at about 30, and the NDP up a little bit, uh, up to around 18 or 19. And the interesting thing about that is these are numbers that are almost identical to what we had in the last federal election. So uh, in spite of everything that's happened over the space of the last two years, things have not moved very much. And in fact, if you take a look at any of the polls that are coming out these days, all of them are within the margin of error of what we're showing. So uh, I can, uh, you know, liberals in first, the conservatives a bit behind in second, and the NDP even a little further behind in third. So even with the changes in leadership, there hasn't been a huge uh, adjustment in terms of uh, party support. Now, a lot of the thinking in this country, from what I understand, is that the tax initiatives or the tax changes Mr. Morneau and Mr. Trudeau uh, tried to persuade Canadians were going to be good for them during the summer and that were rejected by and large, particularly by the small business community. Canadians feel this change was motivated more by a desire for more cash than it was for tax fairness. Is that something that sort of stays... Uh, Daryl, that stays in people's minds, could that be a, an, an anchor as they get closer to 2019? Maybe more so than, uh, than, than Omar Cotter. Yeah, it really can. Well, but all of these things are the sorts of issues that kind of punch through and define 
what a government is all about and a political party is all about. And the vulnerability for the liberals has always been one of privilege. So it wasn't just that question of, of uh, you know, whether or not we were creating tax fairness. It's the motivation behind that, but also uh, relative to the character of the people who are asking you to, to pay more money. And, and this is where the liberals really have their problems. Uh, particularly when you've got somebody like Bill Morneau going through what he's going through, where all of these uh, all of these regulations really don't affect uh, his lifestyle or, her, or his business. And so the problem that the liberals run into is that, uh, first of all, a narrative starting to develop about them being tax and spend liberals, which is a wonderful position for conservatives. They love to run against somebody like that. But also the other part is the sense that they really represent the elite, no matter how much they seem to be talking about uh, the middle class. And then following on that, uh, they represent the elite, but they won't pay their own fair share right, in, order to, uh, in, in order to deal with whatever spending the government's brought into place. So it's, it's, it's not a narrative that works particularly well for the Liberals, and if this sticks to them and goes on for the next two years, it's going to be a more competitive election than it looks like today. So, Daryl, there is territory for Mr. Shear and Mr. Singh to exploit. Oh, absolutely. And this is the first time that we've actually seen, I sort of used this expression, but I think it's apt, we've actually seen blood in the water on Mr. Trudeau since he's been elected. And you can see the shark circling. Uh, you know, every day in question period, Pierre Polivar, who's the, 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 the conservative uh, finance critic, has got something new that he's going to go after Bill Morneau with. And the problem, of course, with, with, uh, with uh, the Minister of Finance being the second most important person in the government, uh, you know, at least the way that we look at it here in Canada, uh, the problem is it's not easy to get rid of him, especially uh, prior to another, uh, prior to his next budget, which mm-hmm. is February, March of next year. So the, the potential for this just to roll on for the next several months is 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 really uh, is really significant uh, for both the Conservatives and the Liberals. And I find that Canadians appear to be paying more attention to the national political scene as well as the provincial scenes, but more attention to the national political scene than than we have for for some time. I maybe it's just my gut feel and, and what I hear on the air. Well, yeah, it's uh, because Mr. Uh, Trudeau has been such a prominent figure. I mean, he's 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 exploded, you know, onto the international scene. He's a brand new figure. He's a he's a visible contrast to Donald Trump. I mean, there's there's so many things that have made him such a compelling political actor, and that he's he's uh, he's courted all of this attention, and now he's getting it. And unfortunately, what's happening for him, at least in the short term, is that the things that people are learning about him are all the wrong things. Mm-hmm. At learning about him and his government. So, uh, you know, the question is, can he? Uh, Turn the channel, turn up the volume on things, the sorts of things that he was uh, uh, so well known for and so popular for over the space of the last two years, or is he going to be mired in this kind of discussion? And the truth is, I mean, we're about to get into a situation on the, the NAFTA agreement where you know there's potential crisis on the on the trade front. Uh, that's not something that's going to uh, sit particularly well with this government unless they can manage it, uh, you know, effectively. We've already seen the, the former prime minister coming out and being critical of their of their position yesterday. So I think Canadian national politics are getting a lot more interesting and complicated than they've been for the last two years. No, I agree. Uh, we only have a few seconds, but it's it's rare that a political party could lose seven points and still maintain a dominant uh, leading role. I mean, lose seven points as quickly as they did. Welcome to Canada. Welcome to Canada. <laughs> Thank you, Daryl. My pleasure, Roy. Always good speaking to you. Daryl Bricker, the president of Ipsos Polling on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Now, these two stories, and Scott Newark's going to talk to us about them and give us his analysis. Scott Newark is a former Alberta prosecutor, executive officer of the Canadian Police Association, security advisor to the governments of Canada and Ontario, and now a security and justice policy analyst, as well as an adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. And the two stories that we're going to speak with Scott about, the first one is that um, the federal government paid out $31.25 million to three men who were falsely imprisoned in Syria. Let me read you a few lines from Global News. The federal government has paid settlements totaling just over $31 million to three men falsely accused of links to terror groups, then imprisoned and tortured in Syria in the early 2000s. Uh, Ottawa announced earlier this year that it had settled with Abdullah al-Malki, Ahmed al-Matl, or Mati rather, and Muyaid Nuruddin. None of the three men has ever been charged with any terror-related offenses. Uh, they have all denied ever participating in any terror activity. Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale and Foreign Affairs Minister Christian Freeland also 
formally apologized last winter to the three for, quote, any role Canadian officials may have played in relation to their detention and mistreatment abroad and any resulting harm. They had filed $100 million lawsuits against the federal government for its alleged role in their ordeals, which occurred from 2001 to 2003. Scott Newark joins us. Scott, uh, what are the immediate questions that are that are there to be asked now? Well, um, I think getting the facts straight. Are we getting the facts straight is probably the first one to start with. And even as you read the uh, headline quote, um, these people were not falsely accused. They were, uh, frankly, not falsely imprisoned because we didn't imprison them. It was the Syrians that imprisoned them. And that's not the basis on which we once again have made a closed-door settlement. Um, and it, it, they are being portrayed, as was the case certainly with uh, uh, Mahar Arar and to a lesser extent even Omar Khadr, as though they were these people completely innocent of anything and the underlying assumption being that, oh, the terrible institutions of the Canadian government and the RCMP and CSIS, they must all be you know, Islamophobic, and they're doing all these terrible things. The truth is much, much different than that, especially in relation to these three people, but that's all completely absent from any media reporting. These guys were all uh, the subject of intelligence and national security investigations before 9-11, okay? They were all, all three of them were individuals that had come to the attention because of their activities and their uh, who they were associating with, and there's an interesting twist in that, and I'll get to in a second, both by Canadian officials and by American officials. And guess when you drill down, Roy, into all of their activities and what they were doing and who they were hanging out with and everything else and where they had been in the past. Two of the three of them had been in Afghanistan. Guess who is a common link amongst all three of them? I know who it is, but go ahead. The Cotter family. Okay. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought you were going to say Mahar Arar. No. Well, Arar has links into them. Arar was simply part of the group. But when you drill down into all of their activities, guess what? All three of them. And that, that's the point in all of this stuff, is that when you're doing intelligence analysis, and don't forget, unlike criminal justice, uh, the criminal justice investigative world, we measure success not in prosecution but in prevention. So the idea that these guys... Oh, they must be innocent, completely innocent if they weren't convicted of anything is not accurate. Our people were doing their jobs in detecting who these individuals were, tracking them. We had even, uh, on, uh, to my understanding, in two of the three of them, they had been interviewed about what they were doing and what they were up to and who they were associating with. Um, and, and two other points that, that, that really need to be mentioned here. Uh, number one... Um, these guys, uh, all of all three of them, left Canada voluntarily to travel to Syria. We were not involved in any way in their transfer. Okay, people forget to mention that. The second part about it was is that it's very convenient. Uh, Sixteen years later, or I suppose even in fairness, like seven or eight years later, when the Yakabuchi report did this investigation into these three, pe- people forget what the circumstances were immediately after 9-11. It was actually known as the second wave. I was involved in some of the work then with the, uh, with the Ontario government, and even before 9-11, I've been aware of some of this stuff from my work at the police association. It was actually known as the second wave. There was a real concern that there, was, there were other attacks that were coming. And, you know, years and years later, to take this armchair quarterback, oh, well, yes, you know, they shouldn't have done that, or they shouldn't have filled out this form that way, or they shouldn't have done, you know, something... That's not the appropriate way to look at these kinds of activities. So what really worries me about this is, frankly, we're creating a damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't environment, right? Our, our uh, foreign affairs officials and CSIS officials were absolutely slammed by the Supreme Court of Canada for actually going and uh, interviewing Omar Khadr, who was being held on uh, terrorist investigation right, in a, in a different country. Yeah, yeah. But that One was unanimous. About just from Justice Yakabuchi is that there wasn't sufficient intervention by our, our officials for these three. That is not a healthy so, so what a, Scott, risk-averse environment. Scott, one of the uh, complaints is, or maybe the key complaint, is that the RCMP and CSIS provided information Correct. about these men, uh, and that's why the Syrians got a hold of them. 
and it was information that would, should not have been provided. If I'm, if I'm reading correctly, that's the one part of the complaint. It is. Yeah, it is. And, and there are definitely um, activities that the RCMP and CSIS did that, looking back, I mean, this wasn't, and in some instances, the sharing of the information, for example, is with the Americans. Mm-hmm. But the, I just was going over Justice Yakabuchi's report. He's not saying that the activities of the Canadian officials led to the Syrians arresting these guys when they were in Syria. But he does say that, I, and I believe it was on two of the three cases where uh, CSIS in particular was providing information or providing uh, questions so that they could be asked of these officials. Well, here's the, st- here's it's the line. I say that we should have realized, hey, you know, the Syrians are not exactly uh, people who you can trust. Yeah. In how so here, here's the line, Scott, from the news story. In 2016, CBC News obtained documents that showed Canadian law enforcement officials were aware that the three Canadians were being tortured and that a Canadian ambassador even helped to deliver questions the RCMP and CSIS wanted put to the men, I guess, while they were being tortured or under the when they're being imprisoned by the Syrians. So uh, did, we, did we cross a line there? I think, personally, I think we made a mistake in the sense of not recognizing that when these guys were in Syrian custody, if we provided information, uh, that they might get roughed up while they were there. Right. Yes. Okay, and I think this should be de- dealt with as a lessons learned experience, like, okay, so how are we going to deal with this? Because, Roy, this isn't going away. We have other people, there, there are, to my knowledge, there are at least two Canadians, young females, who were jihadis in um, Iraq who've been captured and are now in Iraqi custody. How are we going to deal with them? I remember that story. I don't know. Yes, neither do I. But you know what? That's what we should be sitting down, I think, in designing a strategy that is, in effect, charter-compliant, a lessons-learned approach as opposed to a finger-pointing approach, but it should be based on the truth and the facts, which is not that these were three little angels just sort of walking around who somehow got came to the attention of our well, they just, because of the fact that we, you know they're all they crazy. they just got paid thirty thirty one point two five million dollars. What a coincidence of that number, eh? It does work out to ten point five million each. You know, one of the other things that I find ironic about it is that the uh, there was a notification that the apology was being made in March and that there was some kind of settlement, but no details were provided. Mm-hmm. It was only. Um, six months later, when uh, CTV reporter, uh, to his credit, uh, Glenn McGregor, was going through the 1,500 uh, pages of the public accounts, which re- is the spending made by the government, but, but it's in the fiscal year, which ended in March 31st of 2017. So, in other words, the government has kept this amount, just like they did with Omar, tried to do with Omar Khadr. It was a line item. They kept it, they kept it quiet and tried to conceal it for six months until the media reported it. Okay, now the other story, we're going to take a break before we talk about it, but you remember, do you not, that uh, Correctional Service Canada, one day on this program, said to me, and we were talking about uh, Bernardo, and they said that Bernardo was, had, his, had his rights, and then the spokesperson for Correctional Service Canada said, and the rest of you are non-convicted individuals living in the community. Yeah. Remember that? Oh, yeah. That was a classic, that was a classic term, non-convicted individuals living in the community. I then find out, and I'm sure this has been, I mean, you're aware of this. Uh, I was probably aware last year, and then I forgot about it, and here it is again. The individuals who left Canada to go and fight with ISIS or other terror groups now are filtering back into Canada. Their term is extremist Travelers. Yes. The federal government calls them extremist travelers. I don't even know what to do with that. I would like to know who came up with it, and I'd like to know who said, sure, let's use it. I, I would suggest it's the RCMP. They've have a, had a history of uh, using that kind of language. Really? Okay. Well, ha- hang in. We're going to come back with more from Scott Newark. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. ISIS volunteers are coming back to Canada. The number is about 5,600 have returned to their countries of origin after taking part with extremist groups, terror organizations, including ISIS. The French are giving welfare payments to the ones who are going back to France. And in Canada, we call them extremist travelers, but I haven't, I don't know what we're doing. 
Scott Newark is with us, former advisor, security advisor to the federal and Ontario governments and executive director of the Canadian Police Association, international security expert. What, what, what are we doing? Are you there, Scott? Have I pushed the button? Well, you are. Have, uh, I mean, for example, uh, some of us have been asking this for quite a long time because this was predictable. Um, have we assembled a database of who these people are? Um, are we using face recognition biometrics to detect them in case they use phony documents? Um, are they being met at the airports when they return, or even, frankly, before that, if they've managed to get out of either Syria or Iraq, are they coming from Turkey, are they coming into getting you know, smuggled into Europe and then coming out of there? Are they being dealt with there? We have tools in place, Roy. Um, Section 810.011 is a terrorism peace bond where we can actually make inquiries of people to determine whether or not they pose a risk uh, in relation to terrorist activity. Our, uh, unlike normal sections of the criminal code, if they're engaged in what is terrorist activity as defined in Part 2.1 of the criminal code, uh, if they are, have been engaged in activ- that activity abroad, that is still a potentially uh, prosecutable uh, terrorism offense. You don't necessarily want to invoke that full authority in going after people by you know, criminal prosecutions, uh, or even if there may be cases where you don't think the peace bond is necessary. But are we doing any of that? Or is the sort of more politically correct attitude of just, oh, well, you know, because they went and did this, there's, we have no evidence. Well, that's why, that's why they're right? called extremist travelers, because it sounds politically correct. How could, how could somebody who signed up with ISIS not be considered a threat when they come back to Canada? Well, exactly. And I mean, uh, the, how does that the happen? notion of the word extremist is what raised the flag for me, because that is language the RCMP senior command has used, if you remember, Project Samosa in Ottawa, where they apologized, as they put it, to their Muslim brothers and sisters for making the arrests of the uh, the would-be terrorists during Ramadan. Okay, and then the the uh, then uh, Assistant Commissioner Gilles Michaud said, oh, "Well, we have no problems with Islamic extremism, only when it results in crime." Uh, hello, given the motivation of terrorist crime in my business, we call that a clue. Sounds similar to what uh, has been reported about the guy Sharifi in Edmonton, doesn't it? That the RCMP determined. He had extremist ideologies, but that he hadn't done anything, so they just didn't bother to do anything. You know, we've put some tools in place, but the people on the ground have to use them. I'm just reading something as you're as you're talking. I was listening to you too. Right. Um, I, I always listen to you. <laughs> I do. It's a ISIS, a group that poses a particular problem because they became frustrated. Oh, these are the individuals who didn't make it there because they were frustrated after they were fired up to join the caliphate. So Adan made it all the way to ISIS, but they were coming back. A sense of failure and resentment towards the authorities may increase the likelihood that they'll seek other ways to achieve their objectives. This is according to the report that's been written. I love this line. It, uh, It noted that one of the people involved in the attacks on the offices of Charlie Hebdo magazine in Paris had been prevented from traveling to Syria. So I'm, when I say I love that line, it just brings it all into some unfortunate, sharp focus. Then when they come back, they're giving them welfare payments in France. What, Actually, what's wrong with the picture? was that uh, some of them were receiving welfare payments uh, while they were over in Syria uh, fighting with, uh, with ISIS. Their systems were so disconnected. But this, this is a part of the new reality that we're facing. Okay, and your so we don't know what we're doing. Your laws and your operational procedures have to adjust to deal with the new reality. Yeah. And when you're dealing with something that is a threat that is motivated by this kind of an ideological um, uh, sense that happens to be based in a religion, you've got to adjust and be able to deal with it. And simply saying, oh, well, you know, uh, this is somebody simply an extremist and a traveler here, that's not the way to approach things. And that's, that's what concerns me when we were talking before about the, uh, the three guys. And I only have about 10 seconds, Scott. What worries me about this is that we're creating, you know, a damned if you do, damned if you don't environment, and that can re- result in risk aversion for our people on the front lines who just, you know, look the other way and don't use the tools they've got for, to protect public safety. Scott, always good talking to you. All right, Roy. And I do listen. Thank you. Scott Newark. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. The notion that one should stay silent and that as the norms and values that keep America strong are undermined, and as the alliances and agreements that ensure the stability of the entire world are routinely threatened by the level of thought that goes into 140 characters.
That was the voice of uh, Jeff Flake, Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona, as he addressed uh, the U.S. Senate earlier in the week in an attack on uh, Donald Trump. Mr. Trump uh, responded immediately, as you can imagine. And uh, joining us to talk about that particular incident and what it means in his home state of Arizona is Dr. Zudi Jasser, the uh, former lieutenant commander in the United States Navy, former president of the Arizona Medical Association, and author of The Battle for the Soul of Islam. And Zudi, it's always good talking to you. Thank you, Roy. It's great to be with you again. And I understand now that there is a Canadian connection that's coming to your life. Tell us about that. Yeah, I was called uh, by your uh, Heritage uh, Committee uh, to uh, testify on uh, the M103. And M103, as you know, you've talked about many times in your program, uh, has is in a study period right now. So they're gathering testimony. And many of our friends, uh, Rahil Raza, Tariq Fatah, have testified. And uh, I think they're reaching out to folks like myself who have been very outspoken about the need for free speech. And I look forward to uh, testifying on Monday about that, uh, to basically let them know that even the term Islamophobia I find offensive, that the government should never get in the business of uh, filtering free speech or having citizens be afraid to speak out. Islam does not need special protections. And if they do want to work against racism, which is what this committee has been tasked with determining, then they should identify specific issues regarding bigotry against Muslims, against folks from other ethnicities, etc. But don't call it Islamophobia. And and uh, uh, a lot of times the, what is prevented in free speech ends up severely restricting security issues. And I think the the ban on niqab is a good example on how Quebec and other places can start to have smarter policies. Well, let me ask you about the niqab in, in just a moment, and, and then we'll talk about Senator Flake. But um, So you're going to tell the Heritage Committee that you're not in favor of M103, clearly. Yes. Right? And absolutely. Have you had any sense of what they might expect from you? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I think I'm. Uh, you know, hats off to them for getting input from Americans because uh, our free speech laws are a bit uh, more liberal and more open than yours in some ways. Um, but uh, you know, I think they're they've seen my work and, and how outspoken we've been on the need for Muslim reform, and I think they're expecting to hear what is the impact on Muslims and. Uh, you know, it's easy to say that the Canadian government wants to put on paper a a protection against uh, hate speech and what they call Islamophobia, but what will the impact be on Muslims? And my testimony that uh, I think they have some sense that I'll be giving them is that it will have the greatest impact on us reformers because we are the first ones to be listed as Islamophobes by, uh, you know, individuals like the person that authored this uh, M103 who really was articulating what is said in the Pakistani government about those who speak out against the government are called Islamophobes. And those of us who speak out against Islamism are identified as Islamophobes, even though we love our faith. So I hope Canada realizes that M103 is a a guise for restricting your greatest allies within the Muslim community who are reformers. Well, I know you're going to give them a lot to think about. And uh, and I think this, this government needs a lot to think about as far as this particular motion is concerned because of the implications it, it brings along with it and the controversy that's uh, that's come along with it as well. It, it, it needs to be really aired out, sorted out, and it needs to reflect what uh, what really is in the best interest of this country and the people of this country, obviously. Amen. Sunni, what about... What? They realize that the, the, the strongest protector for democracy is free speech. Yeah. And the moment you start identifying faiths like Islam as having rights to be protected when it's not a person. Islam is not a person. It's an idea. It doesn't deserve any protection. Muslims, people of faith do, but that's not what M103 is about. It's about Islamophobia, which I don't believe exists. There was, and I mentioned this last weekend, there a few years ago, there was a human rights tribunal hearing in Canada, and the investigator was brought forward to testify and in his testimony, he was asked about freedom of speech. And he said, oh, in Canada, there is no such thing as freedom of speech. That's an American um, idea. That's an American thing. Well, it's not called freedom of, ex- 
of freedom of speech in Canada. It's freedom of expression. But he had no idea. This is an investigator for the Human Rights Tribunal. He had no idea that we had freedom of expression in our Constitution. This so. is uh, such an important moment for Canadians. You know, I can simply, as an American, help uh, maintain our greatest ally north of us. Uh, and I think in the West, our greatest ally is Canada. And, uh, you know, I hope uh, you can shift the the movements that are happening in society to restrict one of the cornerstones of protections of democracy, which is the ability for people to to push the envelope because the people in the center aren't the ones that test democracy. The people that test democracy are those on the fringes. And, uh, you know, that sort of speaks to what we were talking about, Senator Flake, and um, I think the two are very much related. Well, I'll ask you about uh, Senator Flake in just a moment, but you you brought up the um, the face covering law, Bill 62 in Quebec, and uh, it's passed, it's law. And he will no longer in Quebec be able to receive public services or issue or deliver public services if you're wearing any kind of face covering. Now, that'll wind up before the Supreme Court of Canada. But it also should be said that it's been law in European nations, and I've said this on a number of occasions, and it doesn't seem to get much in the way of of response, but the European Court of Human Rights ruled on the French no niqab or no uh, face veil, and also no burqa law, the European Court of Human Rights ruled that it was perfectly acceptable, that it did not violate human rights, and that it helped society come together. They had then had to make a decision on the Belgian law, because that was also brought forward, and again the European Court of Human Rights, which speaks ultimately for 47 nations, said, no, the, the this particular law is not a violation of human rights. It is perfectly acceptable within within Belgium. Now, yesterday, I think it was in Austria, the no Burka law came into effect. I don't know if that's going to wind up in front of the Court of Human Rights. But Quebec is really um, facing a great deal of opposition to this particular piece of legislation. And you would say what to Quebec? Uh, I don't really understand the opposition at all. I really don't. Um, there is nothing more central to identifying your rights as an individual protections of free speech and individual rights than your identification of who you are. Without facial identity, you lose your ability to identify yourself, and the state can no longer protect you. So at the core of individual identity is facial recognition and facial ID. So if, if they're going to put anything forward under the guise of religious freedom, Americans have tested this law. There have been a number of cases before the Supreme Court that have said that the KKK and other groups don't have a right to have demonstrations with masks because it's a security problem. When you have thousands of people in the streets with masks, uh, people can commit crimes and they cannot be identified. And it was tested in New York State, went to uh, their Supreme Court, and ultimately the Supreme Court and was doing that you can't have a right to facial uh, um, and anonymity in public. And I think it's very important. Sure, people want to stay at home and cover. That's up to them. But if you're going into public places, and this is why you find ISIS using more women for female uh, uh, suicide bombings, etc., there is no security when you can't identify who's committing the act. Zudi, let me put you on hold. We'll come back and we'll talk about Senator Jeff Flake and what he had to say about President Trump. Zudi Jasser is with us, Dr. Zudi Jasser, former president of the Arizona Medical Association. He's the author of Battle for the Soul of Islam, former U.S. Navy lieutenant commander. He's uh, politically active in uh, Arizona, and he's also a fill-in host on AM 96, The Patriot in Phoenix. Very busy man. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. We must never adjust to the present coarseness of our national dialogue with the tone set at the top. We must never regard as normal the regular and casual undermining of our democratic norms and ideals. We must never meekly accept the daily sundering of our country. The personal attacks, the threats against principles, freedoms and institution, the flagrant disregard for truth and decency. Speaking in the American Senate, Jeff Flake, the uh, Republican senator for the state of Arizona, and uh, he's not running again, uh, and he was obviously taking on Donald Trump. You know the story by now. 
President Trump fired back uh, instantly at uh, Senator Flake. And Dr. Zudi Jasser, former president of the Arizona Medical Association, author of Battle for the Soul of Islam, uh, is going to share his thoughts on uh, what Jeff Flake had to say. Zudi, how does this reverberate with you? How does it reverberate what the senator said? How does it reverberate with the people in the state of Arizona, particularly with Republicans? Well, I, I think, Roy, the dust is still settling. Um, you know, Jeff is a good friend of mine. Uh, he has been a wonderful senator as far as uh, Syria, as far as uh, looking at uh, foreign policy, health care issues, free markets. You know, he has a 90% consistency rate with President Trump's position. And he had a pretty good, uh, I'm on the board of the American Conservative Union. We gave him a 90-plus percent uh, score. In the last year, though, he's been a 70%. And I have to tell you, uh, even though he's a friend, uh, you know, I think he uh, went over the top in his criticism. Uh, there's certainly room for criticizing President Trump on behavior, on personality, on some of the vindictiveness stuff. But the bottom line is, is Senator Flake's numbers have been low here because of his positions on immigration. He's part of the Gang of Eight, uh, which uh, many know about. Uh, his positions on uh, um uh, foreign policy issues that have been isolationist and on on not only the wall but immigration in general. So uh, I think it was a bit bizarre, I think, to, uh, in the name of being dubbed a hero by the far left, uh, say that that's why he's leaving when, in fact, uh, he was having a problem ideologically. with. And this is really the biggest criticism I have is that it's really not necessarily, I think, effective to simply blame everything on President Trump's language and what he says in Twitter and other things, there's a large body of people in our state and across the country that are voting for him and the way he's approaching things. And, you know, I think being against the establishment, being anti-swamp, if you will, uh, is, is an important thing. Disruption is important. I think it's a good thing. Now, how he did it, I disagree with the methods that President Trump used. But there is some benefit to shifting tectonically the 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 fossilized methods of approach in Washington that have restricted advancement on a number of things and and as you and I know the Islamic issue is one of them that have finally started to get shaken up a bit. Yeah, uh, Zudi, there was opportunity immediately after Senator Flake's speech for members of the Republican Party. Maybe not only opportunity, there might have been a little bit of cover for them. Had they decided, yeah, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to speak against Donald Trump or the things about the president that trouble me as a member of the Republican Party? I expected some of that. Uh, other than, uh, than, than Senator Corker, who had already had his problems with the president, I didn't hear anything. Yeah, you know, let me first preface this by saying, where was Senator Flake's criticism of the criticisms coming from the left? We in the conservative movement have been... There's been ads of us throwing elderly people off cliffs when we were against Obamacare. Uh, there were in the Obama era and even in the Bush era. Bush was identified as a war criminal and other things. So it's sort of odd to me that now we're starting to look at this. But having said that, you're right. I think uh, it is interesting that none have spoken up. Uh, they are afraid to do so in some ways. But I'm not sure it would be very productive. I think I've been critical of the Trump administration when they've been overly <laughs> you know, uh, positive towards the Saudis, towards uh, the Russians or others. They've been quiet on Syria on something. So when it comes to policy, we should be clear and we should be critical. When it comes to sort of uh, politics of Twitter and, and verbiage, I'm not sure that that would help other than create a civil war within the conservative movement that ultimately the left would be the only victors there. Yeah, it's it's interesting that social media, particularly Twitter, seems to have become a political platform. And as long as it was on the fringes of being a political platform, it, it, I think it served a, a, a purpose. But now it's become more mainstream with more politicians uh, expressing their opinions, their views in 140 characters or less. And I think it's become a distraction, and I think it's really also becoming a negative when the politicians yeah, think, are engaged. You know, listen, I have family in Syria that... Uh are fighting major, major wars and have seen hundreds of thousands killed. And we finally found revolutions, dictators overthrown simply because of social media, of Twitter, YouTube, Facebook. So these networks are tools that can be used to change society to the positive 
and it can be used to change it to the negative. But I think if we want to use it positively, identifying one person, even if it's the President of the United States with the bully pulpit he has, is not the way to do it. We have to shift culturally in that. Ben Sass has done that in many of his statements, and he even didn't come to flake support because I think ultimately the the, ben, the small benefit that you get out of simply talking about Donald J. Trump is not going to be what you get when you want a revolution of change that's going to need a lot more planning for those of us that need to strategically look at where the conservative movement is heading in the next 5, 10, 20 years. Now let me ask you about the report the Democrats had about Donald Trump that they trotted out with great glee and uh, savaged him and tied him to Russia. And now we know that the Democratic Party and members of the Democratic Party connected to Hillary Clinton paid for that report. And what I expected uh, Mrs. Clinton to say was, what difference does it make now? That, that is what they're saying, by the way. <laughs> is it? CNN yesterday <laughs> no. had on that, oh, really? he's a poor private citizen <laughs> in northern New York. Look at how obsessed the conservatives are about it. Why are they, you know, this whole stuff on Clinton cash and stuff. You know, it's just amazing to me that when something boomerangs and you realize that both sides of the swamp, uh, I would ask you to look up. There's a friend of mine, Thor Halverson, who's one of the world's biggest advo- uh, advocates and activists on human rights. And he talked about how Fusion GPS created a dossier against some of the people he was working with in Venezuela. And they're known notoriously to be sort of the mafia of how to create false information about people that you want destroyed. And he was a victim of that and talked about it on Fox a few days ago. And there's no doubt both sides of the aisle have used Fusion GPS. Uh, This time it's Hillary and the DNC that did, and it should expose that if you're actually going to do an investigation about the Russian connections, it is going to be a pretty promiscuous wicket when they get through. And, uh, you know, let the let the chips fall where they may. And the 30 seconds we have left, what do you expect uh, from Bob Mueller's report in the next few days? Well, I hope, you know, as much as there have been calls for him to resign, you know, he's, there's an indictment apparently that uh, has fallen. And, and uh, I hope it will shed some clarity, whether it's Manafort or whoever it is, uh, that uh, there are some folks that need to be held accountable for the exploitation of their positions uh, at the expense of national security. So I think we'll see some clarity coming to what they're finding in the details. Zudi, thank you so much. Almost great speaking with you. Anytime. Thanks, Roy. Take Appreciate care. It. Dr. Zudi Jasser on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.